oh my god, I didn't realize there were real people here. I thought I was just talking to my computer as usual. <laughs> How's everybody this evening? As long as you don't read the news, you're good, right? How many of you read the news? Good. A little. <laughs> but whenever you say that, I think, uh-oh, I missed something. I better go check. <laughs> Too much. Too much. Nothing. I was just kidding. There's nothing going on. Really just the usual humdrum stuff like sports and things like that. Nothing interesting. <laughs> Two minute break. I'll be right back. In order that all, in order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues and the many fields of knowledge, all are steps in the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect, O Manjushri, please accomplish this. Hey, so, uh, good evening, and uh, tonight I think is class 10, is that right? Maybe? Or 9? Maybe 9. Something like that. So we're about two-thirds through the classes and the material, the course and the material. And so there's going to be some uh, repetition. We saw some repetition tonight, which we can skip and focus on other stuff. And then uh, going forward, there'll be some repetition, I apologize, and then hopefully we'll get into uh, two things. One is like an overview of shamatha and vipassana, a couple of those in one class, and then um, some uh, Dzogchen version or Vajrayana version of shamatha, a little more thoroughly doused by that, which should be fun. And uh, by uh, by having completed the reading for tonight, at this point, you should be like experts in knowing about shamatha. And so now you should go on a one-year re shamatha retreat, okay? <laughs> Wouldn't that be <laughs> interesting? And uh, so tonight we had two readings, and I'll go through the one in this. Let's, uh, let's see, it's from the Four Measurables. It's called The Path to Shamatha. An overview. On the source book, it's page 212. I'll go through that in uh, some detail. And then uh, on the second reading, Meditative Quiescence, I'll just focus on the, the material that's new, which is the release model, right? And. Uh, Thank you, Liz, for the source books. Big shout out. Real yeah. quick. Sorry. Thank you, Liz. Yeah. Thank you, Liz. Right, Liz. 
And Liz painted that, right? You painted that image, is that right? Behind her. <laughs> no, the one that we see when you when you uh this one? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. She's no. fancy. <laughs> no, Lee gave me those flowers for my birthday a couple of years ago. Oh, that's a photo. It was the most beautiful arrangement I'd ever seen. So I took pictures of it like every day. Oh, cool. And then you did the painting of it. That's neat. That's so cool. Thank you, Liz. <laughs> yeah, and payment information forthcoming. Uh, let's see the path, the path to Shamatha. It's a funny title, but the nine stages. So you probably have heard about them and read about them before. Hopefully this one was a little more relatable than other versions. And, uh, this, this sort of, uh, went over everything and started with the nine stages. So let's see. He points out that the the fun thing about these nine stages is that even though they uh, they progress into a an area that few of us have ever dreamed we actually touched upon, uh, they start right where we are, which is nice. As opposed to like when you talk about the five paths and things like the ten bumis and the paramitas, they're all sort of like off in dreamland but this is like where we are so and he says this is also helpful because the problems that arise in each stage are distinct require different remedies and to some he doesn't say this but to some extent i think they occur all throughout our practice and so you you uh, uh, benefit from knowing about all the stages of mental placement Accomplishing this first stage means that you can find your object. <laughs> what is the object again when we meditate? Anyone? The breath. The breath. <laughs> Which breath? Out breath. The out breath, yeah. And the whole out breath? Yes. So, so as it uh, as it goes out the nose, and then as it what it, it extends in space, is that the out breath? What about as it goes from the lungs to the nose? Is that is that included? Maybe. Okay, we haven't really thought about it in this much detail before. Okay, I'm just checking. I don't need to pry or anything, you know. I would say, I mean, when I practice, I would say yes, but I don't know if that's the correct answer, so. <laughs> okay, you know, so curious. Just some people like do the out breath like right here, right at the nose. Whereas we've read in other places, you feel it on the upper lip. If you have an upper lip, I don't actually have an upper lip for some reason they ran out when i was made and uh and then there's the question of like do you imagine that it goes out you, you know some people present meditation you follow the breath out and they 
do this with their arms out into space as if the breath actually went out straight in front of you and the nostrils were just like openings <laughs> but our nostrils are pointed downwards i think so the breath goes down but just curious you know so so basically i get the feeling that most of us are doing focusing on the out breath as sort of a mental image we have this feeling of breathing out and uh, and and there's an energy to that and a sensation that is sort of the uh, um, a, a light basis of designation for the out breath is that fair okay you might think about it next time you breathe I mean next time you meditate think about you know what it where is the out breath what is it that I'm focusing what's the object of my meditation can I just ask Derek because you brought yeah. up the lungs I do like so I do like notice the lung the sort of pumping of the lungs um but maybe I shouldn't be uh thinking about that part of it Oh, that's fine. That okay. That's fine. <laughs> you know, uh, in some places, Trump Rinpoche says focusing on the air leaving the nostrils, but uh, that's only in one place. Other places, he's not as he's not precise, and he describes the full out breath by which uh, he doesn't explain, but one would think that would include the feeling of that. Um, diaphragm pressing in and pushing against the lungs and air, air coming up through the air what is it, the esophagus from the lungs out into the uh, space in front of us through the nose or the nose and the mouth. People keep their mouth open as well, anyone? Slightly open? Slightly. Keep your mouth ajar slightly. <laughs> your mouth is ajar. Good. And uh, remember to try to breathe from your lower belly, if you can. Uh, the lower belly breathing is the, is the deepest, healthiest type of breathing. It really settles you. Eric? Uh, yes, ma'am. I mean, it's, it's our thought of the breath for a really long time. I mean, will we ever be actually focusing on our breath rather than the thought of our breath? No. No, it, it actually goes the other way. It's more and more the thought of the breath. I mean, at some point, doesn't thinking sort of go away out of it? We're just like, I mean, no. I mean, did the Buddha, was the Buddha thinking about his breath? Or was he just like really one with his breath? You know, they, he never describes what object he chose when he sat down that famous evening. Mm. <laughs> was Rinpoche? I mean, was he? He teaches focusing on the breath and, uh, you know, he says, feel the breath. So he's emphasizing the sensory tactile sensation of the breath he's he's emphasizing focusing on that he is uh you know he does talk about this psychosomatic body here and there that basically we're experiencing a mental projection of our body 
Um, but oh. he, he often uses the physicality of the breath as a way of getting out of our head and out of our uh, mental imagery. So um, there's there's sort of two two options, two lines of thought about this, or two views about it. One is is the view that uh, Alan is commonly presenting, which is common, uh, very common in the Theravadan tradition, and that is that you're uh, as you meditate, you're uh, quickly shifting. You're you're immediately cultivating more and more a mental image of whatever your object is. And you're sort of receding into that mental world. That's the replication of that object. And it becomes more and more mental and more and more subtle. And you see him describe that here. He uses the, the stages of the nimitta, the, the image. And he's describing, for some reason in this version, he's describing the way of doing shamatha that leads into the absorption states which is not the common way that most of the Tibetan tradition does shamatha. And uh, most of the Tibetan tradition does shamatha as a way of leading into Mahamudra or Dzogchen, which has a very different tenor to it, um, which we'll gradually explore. But uh, it's a good question. It's a very good question. Um, you know, but uh, sort of technically, like from the, the point of view of uh, the Sautrantical logic, we as non-enlightened sentient beings are always in conceptual thought. So there's, there's you know, a series of moments of, of cognition, and, and the first of those is uh, direct, valid, non-conceptual through the senses. And then, which is not really registered by me or us. And then there's the recognition. Oh, I'm focusing, I'm focusing on this or that. And we're in our mental version of that. Um, but there, there is this sort of, um, with, with the tradition he's coming from with the Vajrayana, there's this emphasis on the senses. And so there is this, this implication in various places that as we're meditating, we're getting out of our conceptual world and connecting directly with the sensory world. But um, that's, that's a, an interesting issue, which is because the Vajrayana does take build on the point of view of the Madhyamaka view, which is basically that the ex external, that objects are illusory, that they don't really exist as anything. And so the sense of uh, there being a, um, a meditator and a meditated upon is not uh, a valid construction, which is um, the sort of prasangika madhyamaka version that pervades most of Tibetan Buddhism. But when uh, Kagyus and, and Nyingmas in particular meditate, they're coming from the Vajrayana view, which is not the Madhyamaka view. It adds another layer to the Madhyamaka view. When 
when you meditate from a Galugpa point of view, you are taking the Madhyamaka point of view. Uh, but from the Kagyu-Nyingma point of view of meditation, you're really taking a sort of Zhentong or great Madhyamaka point of view, which is much more like a Yogacara point of view that um, there is really no external world separate from the mind. So that was a sort of long-winded attempt to not answer your question definitively. <laughs> I hope I succeeded. On the next page, uh, two is continual placement, which means that you're able to attend to your meditative object free of ugly, gross, coarse excitation for about a minute without forgetting it altogether. Minutes a long time, right? To actually be with the breath for a full minute continuously. So, you know, number two out of nine seems like very little, but it's actually a, a really substantial accomplishment to be able to genuinely be with your breath for a full minute. <clears throat> Uh, there's nothing, skipping to the next paragraph, there's nothing magical about that duration, but maintaining such a degree of continuity is a sort of a signpost. You know, initially our continuity is very short, if at, <laughs> if at all, as we know from the waterfall phase of just like total distraction. It, it implies you have some actual continuity in your attention. At the first stage, you have virtually no continuity at all. All you have is that you know the object. You have some idea of what you're meditating on. You pop in and out for a second or two at a time, a staccato meditation, and then you're gone for five or ten seconds or much longer. The second stage moves towards continuity, although there still can be plenty of peripheral noise. There's probably background chatter in your mind, and your object might not be very clear. It could be extremely fuzzy, but at least you're not losing it entirely for long periods of time. There's some sense that you're remembering that you're meditating on your breath, even while there's all this stuff going on. So you accomplish the second stage, it is said, by the power of reflection. I left out, did he give the power of the first stage? In the first stage, he said, if you can see the image in your mind's eye, you have accomplished the first stage. So that's his interpretation of, uh, you know, whether we actually are uh, focusing on the breath or a mental image of the breath. He's very much into the mental image. He, he doesn't state it here, but the first power, there are six powers that go throughout the nine stages. And the first power is learning, learning about the technique. And when we learn about the technique, one of the things we learn is that the object is the breath. Second stage, coming back to where I was, which was the third paragraph under continual placement, you accomplish the second stage, it is said by the power of reflection. The chief element that makes the transition from the first 
to the second stage possible is mindfulness. So reflection, he doesn't explain the powers here, unfortunately, it was the only thing missing, unfortunately, because the powers are very helpful, but uh, power of learning is hearing about, reading about the technique, receiving instruction. The power of reflection is thinking about the technique like we just did, like by meditating on the actual breath or the mental image of the breath. Am I meditating on the whole breath? And if, if it's the whole breath, then where does that breath start and where does it end? Or if it's just where a certain point where the breath leaves the body or enters and leaves the body, or is it the in-breath and the out-breath? Many people still do that, or, or not still. Many people do that as if it's like old-fashioned. Many people still do that. <laughs> Believe it or not, um, you know. So, so reflecting, like, where, where am I focusing? What is my actual object? And why am I keeping my eyes open? And and how is my posture? And what am I doing with thoughts? And you know, how long am I sitting for? And why am I sitting? All of that is reflection. And it's actually really important and helpful to do that. You know, to some extent, it's the skirts of thinking, and we shouldn't be. But it's actually supportive to some to uh, some extent, unless, of course, it becomes excessive. It's obviously or uh, certainly better done outside of the formal session of thinking of these things, reflecting on these things. But it's so much more effective to reflect on these things in a slightly discursive way while you're actually trying to meditate. A critical issue here, interesting that he presents this. So he, he's pr pretty much presenting a Theravon, the, the Theravon system. Um, but, well, not really Theravon, the standard sort of Indian Buddhist system for this. Uh, but he slips in the, the Vajrayana point of view of relaxation, which is not at all stressed in the standard early Buddhist presentation of this scheme. Especially if you tend to become very goal-oriented in the practice. Um, and he adds that it sort of invites goal orientation. You know, when you learn about it in the formal way of like there's these stages and there's these obstacles and there's these hindrances and there's powers and antidotes and stuff. And you make a, uh, that makes sort of a very much of a project out of it. Whereas in our community, our tradition, we, we actually go to uh, some lengths to make it non-project like. Uh, so he has to stress relaxation, uh, which is very helpful. Which doesn't mean not doing the technique properly. It just means be relaxed about it, and in particular not goal-oriented, which we do talk about a lot. It's very easy beyond having found the object to grit your teeth and bear down with the resolve, I'm going to get this continuity if it kills me. I'm glad you're laughing because I, I find that funny too. I don't, you know, for us, 
it, it's never presented that way for him to like even express that. It's a little weird, but okay. You will get continuity and it may indeed kill you if you go about it with that muscular approach, macho approach to shamatha. You've forgotten all about ease and relaxation, forgotten that maybe, maybe you should actually enjoy the practice. It's called quiescence for a reason. I like that line. Transition from the first to the second or between any two stages actually happens gently, gradually. It's not overnight. It's not like a big, you know, oh, psh, or from one day to the, or session to the next, but it's a gradient. You find more and more frequently periods of continuity become the norm. And the way to move from the first attentional state to the second is by sustaining the relaxation and applying a subtle degree of effort to maintain the S, the attention. The continuity must not be one at the expense of relaxation. <coughs> If you forget that, you will waste a lot of time. And frankly, the only reason to have a meditation teacher is so that you don't waste your time. So much time. The second stage feels good. <laughs> it's not blissful. It's not uh, continuously, though you may have a little flash of bliss once in a while. The bliss is a little bit extreme. Maybe it's like relaxation you have a little glimpse of peace of not being plagued by your mind there's a calm soothing quality to it it's very quietly pleasant and it's not born anymore you can do it for an hour even two or three hours without feeling bored okay so we just shifted into a very different way of looking at this stage didn't we it's like a minute you know, we were all like, okay, yeah. Suddenly, you can do this for two to three hours without being bored. That's not, that's not the same as being, you know, present for a minute. That's a very different experience. So, uh, you know, the, these stages quickly become sort of significant accomplishments that few of us have achieved. It's not terrifically high quality and it's not intensely interesting, but it is just quietly pleasant. And that's really saying something. Patched placement. <laughs> the third is called uh, that because uh, the attention is patched like a piece of clothing. It's like having a pair of blue jeans with a hole here and there, but the holes are patched. There's a lot of fabric that doesn't have holes. At this point, you can stay on the object by and large for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour. For that length of time, you completely lose touch with it or occasionally forget all about it as a result of gross excitation. I have a feeling that's a misprint. Does anyone agree with me? Yeah, I felt this confused by this. I thought there's the word not might be missing. Yeah. For that length of time, you do not completely lose touch with it. Or, um, or you never completely lose touch with it or, or occasionally forget about it. I don't know, that, that sentence is confusing. His editor, he needs to get a different editor, I think. I know a good editor. I'll recommend it. 
him. But uh, you get it back pretty quickly. You do occasionally forget about it as a result of gross excitation, but you get it back quickly, and you're not gone for long periods of time. The object is not perfectly clear, and you have some background chatter, at least intermittently, but you don't lose your attention for long, for very long. And then for close placement, <clears throat> well, with the accomplishment of the force, your mind is imbued with a deep sense of calm, and you don't lose the object anymore for hours at a time. Wow. Uh, you don't lose the object not because you're holding on for dear life. Rather, you have too much stability for the boat to rock so far over that your attention slips off and rolls into the ocean of distraction. You have gained this chiefly by the power of mindfulness. So the third power is the power of mindfulness, not forgetting the object, mindful of the object. And at this point, gross excitation is temporarily overcome, meaning during the session, I think. How do you develop the stability, increase the staying power of mindfulness by doing it? It takes practice more than any special technique. Uh, you go back to it again and again and again. So we've learned the technique, and now it's just a, a, a matter of habituating your mind to being with that object over and over and over again, minute after minute after minute. And in, in this case, hour after hour. Let's see. It's a fairly simple practice. Oh, sorry, I skipped something. It said that at the fourth stage, the power of mindfulness reaches its fruition, comes to its full strength. So it's the culmination of mindfulness. And after this, we develop other powers. It's a fairly simple practice up to this point with the one caveat that you must progress through these stages without loss of relaxation again. Skip to the next paragraph. When you reach the fourth state, there's a lot of continuity in your mindfulness. Uh, you are especially prone to laxity. Even though you have strong mindfulness, this is that point where laxity tends to kick in because, uh, because there's so much focused attention. You, you get the feeling that you don't need to do it anymore. You don't need to continue to exert energy. And at this point, introspection, the monitor of the process of meditation, becomes especially important. You need to watch very closely, though intermittently, not continuously watching. Watching is the support of mindfulness. It doesn't replace mindfulness. So, you know, we, we talk about watchfulness or the watcher. And that sense of watchfulness is um, in some sense it's introspection. Uh, but I, I th in some sense it's also mindfulness is the watcher. Uh, and it's sort of like mindfulness is the main watcher and introspection is of the sort of active watcher. And Trungpa presents a, a progression in the watcher between sort of the uh, normal or um, heavy-handed watcher 
becoming more subtle to the uh, what he calls the transcendent or abstract watcher. And that's sort of where mindfulness and introspection merge. And you just have this constant watchfulness. The chief task of the fourth state as you orient yourself towards the fifth state is to get rid of gross laxity. So there's still this uh, tendency to become tired. <laughs> Gross laxity occurs when the vividness of the attention fades out. We've all seen this. Sometimes we're very clear and focused. And then other times we can be focused, but not clear. And it's actually really helpful to experience that difference and to know that difference. We're like with the object, but we're just not clear. not strong. The attention is not strong. The remedy is to pay closer attention. So just arouse your energy and pay more attention to the detail of the breath. To the, um, you know, some aspect of the breath, whether it's, uh, you know, whatever your, your sense of the breath is paying more and more closer and closer attention to that aspect of it. You give a little more effort to it, but too much effort will undermine your stability and your relaxation to cause turbulence. So it's a balancing act, and it takes trial and error to master it. Give it just the right amount of effort to sustain the stability improve, and improve the vividness. Improving vividness is like focusing more and more finely, with a lens, with the lens of your attention. One of the characteristics of enhanced vividness is that you see greater detail. You become more and more aware of the details of the breath, the feeling of it, the sense of it going out, the sense of, it, of where it starts. He says uh, this type of effort is a subtle effort. It's not like a, a forced pushing. You may find on the next page, you may find that you still have considerable amount of background, mental background noise through the fourth stage. This is not like an ordinary wandering thought, but more like a split focus. You're concentrating on the breath, but you can still hear a conversation going on in your mind at the same time. It's often like overhearing somebody else's conversation in which you have no role whatsoever. You just sort of hear your mind chattering in its usual way. Or it may take the form of imagery, a slideshow, or a movie that appears on the periphery of your awareness. Just sort of random images coming and going. <clears throat> 
And then here he shifts into the scheme that leads towards absorption meditation for some reason. After some time when you've achieved good stability, a mental image similar to a spontaneous viv visualization may appear in the area where you have been attending. And uh, so this is a, a description of that shift into the mental, into the subtle mental object that is encouraged in the Theravada tradition that goes into absorption, which is not, um, which is not the tradition that we've been trained in, in Tibetan Buddhism. And uh, so it's important to, to understand this other system and to understand the differences. So here we see this other system, and then later on we'll see the, uh, the system that we've been introduced to, most of us at least, I think. Most commonly it takes the form of a little pearl of light. <laughs> Probably, I don't think any of us have experienced the pearl of light. At first it will come just occasionally and you should not pay much attention to it. This is the traditional instruction that if you like become excited about that, that light that appears um, early on or like when it first appears, then it will end up uh, diffusing the intensity of your intention, of your attention. So basically you ignore it for a long time. Gradually it will stabilize and become routine. So when it becomes constantly present and brighter and more distinct, at that point you shift your attention to it in case that should happen to any of you. That's the technique. So this, the remaining stages I'll sort of go through quickly. When it arises regularly of its own accord, whenever you sit down to your meditation, then it's time to shift the focus of your attention. You move your focus from the tactile sensation of the breath and place your attention on the image that has arisen. So he actually notes you're going from the physical sensation of the breath to the mental image. And that naturally arisen mental image or sign and remains your object up to the time you reach shamatha. There's no definite time when that sign will appear, but it may begin to show up occasionally as early as in the third attentional state. The fifth stage is taming. Um, greater vividness occurs at this stage. Coming into the fifth stage, so I'm skipping around in this description, you're already free of gross excitation, but now your task is to overcome gross laxity. Excitation is um, upward energy and laxity is downward energy. <clears throat> By paying closer attention to the object of meditation, you enhance the vividness of your attention, thereby achieving a greater density of moments of time, I'm sorry, moments of clear mindfulness directed upon the object. He says many contemplatives mistake this for actual shamatha or samadhi because they're on the object and they can, uh, they may remain in a state of gross laxity devoid of the potency of vividness. Here's that, you know, being 
really stuck in uh, laxity meditation. If a dedicated meditator does this for long periods of time, you can actually damage your intelligence. It's uh, one's intelligence wanes. The long-term karmic results are even worse. You're sort of meditating on becoming dumb. So it's important not to succumb to laxity, but to recognize and encounter and enhance the vividness of your intention. And this is partly why the, the Tibetan and Mahayana tradition tends to veer off before this stage into something else. Pacification. The chief agenda is to get rid of even subtle excitation. So there's gross and subtle excitation and laxity. By the time you accomplish this state, your senses are pretty much withdrawn. So this is the avenue towards absorption. And uh, the continuity of your attention is now very tightly woven, which I think means that it's uh, very powerful and um, focused and strong. Complete pacification. Having accomplished the sixth stage, there's still room for improvement in terms of vividness and overcoming subtle laxity. Because you overcame subtle excitation in the sixth, now it's subtle laxity, which requires intense vividness. And uh, when you have overcome even the most subtle laxity, you've achieved the seventh state complete pacification and by now you should have moved from the tactile sensation of the breath and he mentions at the nostrils which is one of the traditional focal points for meditation and you're focusing on the mental side of the breath and you still need introspection because what you have accomplished at this point is not immutable single-pointed placement when you reach the eighth stage there's virtually no danger of any kind of laxity or excitation arising you give a little bit of effort at the beginning of the session and when you get started it goes effortlessly it's like a perpetual motion machine just kick started and it goes you're cruising and you really don't need introspection much at this point your external senses are shut down and you won't hear anything. You're locked in and you just continue with that. Log your hours. <laughs> meaning, meaning that one uh, practices for many hours at this stage in order to achieve it, in order to progress further. To balance placement, the ninth stage. And... Uh, this is the power of familiarity. And we skipped the, uh, so we had the, the six powers. The first power is learning. The second power is reflection. The third power is mindfulness. And these are in the little chart I had uh, circulated. Let's see if I have that handy. So since you brought that up, can I ask, I wanted to ask about the two and three, because I think he had continuous as two and patchwork as three. Did he? 
And I was just wondering if that was a difference of tradition or just, uh, or what that might be. I think he did. He has continual as two, yeah, and then patched as three. Yeah, well, his sense of continual is for a minute. <laughs> you know, so the terminology is not uh, particularly indicative of the... Uh, no, I thought, I thought the continual was the... Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's the minute, and then it goes to the hours in the next one. Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of weird. I just wondered whether there's something different about those about that segment there in different traditions or not. Not that I know of. Okay. Three is, you know, where the uh, the power of mindfulness kicks in, and four is where the power of mindfulness is is accomplished, perfected. Contemplating, he uses the term reflecting instead of contemplating. So those are synonymous in this case. The six powers, one, learning is one, contemplating is two, mindfulness is three, introspection is four. And then the fifth power is ex exertion or enthusiasm. And as we saw, that has to be a subtle sort of energy or exertion. And then the last one is familiarity, or um, sometimes called equilibrium, even placement. Here we have the obstacles, laziness, forgetting the instructions, and the antidotes to those. Forgetting the instructions, the antidote is mindfulness, same as the power. And the uh, obstacle um, of elation or excitation and laxity, the antidote is awareness or introspection. And then the force <laughs> of the five obstacles <clears throat> not applying the antidote. And then the, the seventh antidote is to apply them. <clears throat> Excuse me. Over applying is the last obstacle, and the antidote is just to rest in equanimity or equilibrium. And uh, going back to the to the reading, this is uh, the only. He says, by the power of familiarity, we attain the ninth. And the only difference is that in the ninth state, you don't need any effort at all becomes completely natural. Rimshe calls it what naively resting, something like that. It's just totally natural, naturally resting. By just a uh, let's see, you slip into the meditative state and remain for hours. <clears throat> By just abiding in the state transformations are taking place. It feels uh, like there's not really anything happening, but you're, you're processing. Things are happening. Your energies are moving around, getting readjusted and aligned in the body. So uh, through shamatha practice in this uh, 
in these advanced stages, you're doing basically what the inner yoga practices of uh, the inner heat and so forth are doing in a very um, sort of con uh, concrete or gross or forced way. This is a very gentle way of bringing the energies and the winds into the proper alignment in, in the internal internal body. The achievement of shamatha entails the freedom from both gross and subtle excitation and laxity, and you enter into the meditation state upon your chosen object and sustain it indefinitely, free of laxity and excitation. <clears throat> your senses shut down, you're utterly intent on the object, and it becomes effortless. You don't need to hold on tightly. So, gives, quick, sorry. Question. Um, in since he's describing this from within the tradition that uses the jhanas, yes. if we if we were talking about this from not from that perspective, this part about the senses being shut down would that be different? I believe so. Okay, because that's not our practice to do that. Right. Right. Okay. So our, our practice is more the um, focusing on the nature of the mind as the object and it has a very different scheme which which is not that clearly spelled out i've never seen any presentation of like what would that look like in terms of the nine stages but that certainly seems to be the uh the the general ideas that one could still achieve the nine stages through that object and that technique uh, without the senses necessarily closing down. And uh, did we see that discussion? I think we saw that discussion early on where there was a difference. He was comparing the full shamatha between different traditions. <clears throat> and he noticed that there was a difference uh, in, in the Theravadan tradition. The senses are completely shut off. And in the Vajrayana tradition, the senses are still open and one is still perceiving sense objects. But uh, his teacher, Gelcho Rimshe, tried to reconcile or presented a way to reconcile the two by saying that your, your senses are not closed, but there's no um, sort of subject-object um, registering of the object of the senses it's sort of like your senses are are um, permeable and sense objects the energy of sense objects sort of flows through them without creating any um, change in one's uh, mental state was the implication sounds like or it's non-duality. So exactly, like exactly, yeah. It has that, which is the whole idea of meditating on the nature of the mind, is like there's no difference between the still mind and the moving mind. And, you know, here we have a huge difference, a huge focus on the still mind in this tradition. Um, and the moving mind is, a, is the problem. Thank goodness for the Vajrayana. Indeed. <laughs> So let's see. Um, the second paragraph, or the first full one on page 
uh, text page 66, uh, the end of the first overlapping paragraph. He says he uses this image of a hockey puck gliding on, on very smooth ice. The cool image, if you've ever seen that, the puck just like goes on forever. And this effortlessness comes just prior to shamatha, but as you become more familiar with this effortless samadhi, then shamatha kicks in. And the actual attainment of shamatha is an event. <laughs> it's scheduled. You can buy tickets on, uh, what is that? That website that does events. Eventbrite? Eventbrite, yes. <laughs> you, have to, you have to schedule it on Eventbrite. <clears throat> I will not leave you wondering whether or not it happened. It's really definitive. It will come in like the Star Spangled Banner at a specific time. It's that identifiable, even though prior to that you're totally focused in the mental realm. When shamatha takes place, you reconnect with your body. I added those words. You feel a radical shift in the physical body. A rush of unprecedented ecstasy arises in the body and mind. One wonders whether Mr. Wallace has experienced this himself. You may experience foretastes of it prior to attaining shamatha, but it comes on in an unprecedented fashion with actual shamatha. This ecstasy that saturates the entire body and mind is not very useful. <laughs> Must be very pleasurable, though. But it's a clear marker. It tapers off. <clears throat> the mind settles into a state of very grounded, vivid, effortless stability with an echo of that bliss. Those three qualities of vividness, stability, and bliss. The body also acquires an unprecedented quality of buoyancy and pliancy or suppleness, uh, synchronization. Body and mind are fit for service. You can join the army. And the pleasure involved is not so overwhelming that it interferes. At that point, you've attained shamatha. Is this actually possible? And he goes into some description of this, which is a very good question. But you can read what he says. There's not much to add there. Uh, so back on, uh, on the right-hand side of the page, or 67, second full paragraph, he says, even if you never achieve shamatha, any progress towards it is valuable. Any progress towards shamatha can be used towards other things for the cultivation of compassion, um, creativity, expands uh, significantly. And the practice tends to bring a very powerful integrative quality to one's understanding. I think we all have experienced that where when we, we study and then we practice, and when we practice somehow our understanding of dis diverse dharmas, and, and I'm using the term dharma in the sense of the teachings of the Buddha, like the bazillions of lists or the ideas about this and that, somehow we, we process them in our meditation practice without actually thinking about them, and they sort of assimilate and begin to connect and uh, make sense more and more and sort of um, support each other and open up deeper levels of understanding. <clears throat> if you really want to achieve shamatha, there's a time-tested prescription. 
do nothing <laughs> all the time. <laughs> Radically simplify your life for a period in practice in such a way that your whole life is focused on shamatha meditation. It's, it's a retreat. Even retreats, it's very difficult to do that. It, uh, many people have done this in the past, so it is clearly very possible. Then he says, it's actually possible to achieve shamatha, not in retreat, but in daily activities. If you are really clear about what you're doing, and he doesn't really frame it this way, but it's basically like you have to have like profound inner renunciation, where you're not really invested in the outcomes of activities. Uh, but you're you're totally focused on being present in a different way in your life, which is really a stretch, I think, for most people. As well as you would need to set aside periods throughout the day for shamatha, and you cannot afford to let your activity become compulsive, frenetic, or agitated. In other words, you don't want to have anything to do with work, people, <laughs> or pretty much anything else in our normal life. <laughs> no news. <clears throat> okay. It goes through next the uh, the prerequisite, prerequisites for achieving shamatha with this statement, the general statement along the way that, like, you know, obviously this is a very difficult achievement. Um but there's a lot of things that we can do outside of meditation practice that actually have a profound impact on our ability to achieve a, an increase in our level of shamatha. And those are a suitable environment. Um, you know, our, our job, where we live, who we live with, Things like that have a profound impact on our state of being and thereby our ability to meditate deeply. Um, again, you know, if you're an unusual individual, you can achieve that state of total presence and mindfulness and unshakability within any situation. It's very rare. Um, and so in the West, you know, the, this sort of ideal situation is very hard to come by. And uh, in some way, it, it sort of frames what Rimshe, Trungpa Rinpoche, was talking about in terms of enlightened society, trying to create a community that's a, that understood and appreciated and valued meditation and had, and supported the practice of people meditating. Because in order to really have a, a suitable environment, it, it helps a lot to live in a, in a culture that understands what meditation practice is. Contentment, an inner contentment, where we're not always wanting more and more and shopping constantly, <laughs> having few desires. These are difficult things to achieve. It's easier just to practice a lot, probably. <laughs> than to achieve some of these things. <clears throat> Ethical discipline. Not, not creating like 
karmic waves in our world, you know, like of like um, being mean to people that then you have to spend a lot of energy and time dealing with their reactions to that. Or, you know, literally doing really terrible things where you have to deal with law enforcement and things like that. Having few concerns. That's a hard one. And lastly, avoiding compulsive ideation. Includes cravings and so forth. I love this one. He gives us an example of a retreat who told him that <clears throat> he came up with this idea of being the first Westerner to change shamatha and he would be on the Johnny Carson show. <laughs> Isn't that great? Like having like that uh, sort of fame as like something that you would actually think about in terms of your achievement of shamatha. It also places this in time, right? You know, so Johnny Carson's show ran until 1992, from 1962 to 92. So this was quite some time ago. This sounds it, like it sounds like the slogan of "Abandon All Hope of Fruition." <laughs> yes, the opposite of that, right? So it's sort of like you know the Beatles—they were on Johnny Carson, and you know the dog. The animal tricks are on Johnny Carson, you know. And then we have the meditator, you know. They, like, put the guy goes into meditation, like, at the beginning of the show, and they do everything with the guy sitting there, unmoving the whole time. And periodically they pan. Anyway. He says, this is obviously the hardest prerequisite of all. <clears throat> it's a pretty tall order. This is what we do all day long, is ideation. So, uh, it's, a, it's a difficult, slippery slope. He sums up at the end, he concludes with saying, these prerequisites are not discrete goals or states that you have accomplished or not, rather, insofar as you bring them into your life. Your life is made more meaningful, and um, adding that to the extent you you can do these things, it's it's that much more supportive to your practice. What are the obstructions? There's these traditional five obstructions, and these are not the obstacles. These are different from the obstacles, and this is uh, very much the traditional early Buddhist or i.e. Theravon uh, presentation. Ill will <coughs> of all types hatred, anger, and so forth, is the first of those. The second one is sensual desire, which pervades our world in so many ways. I like, like the way he says, when he was doing this five-week group retreat as a, a monk, he was with a number of other monks, there was one monk, only one, I'm like, come on, couldn't have been only one. So who was it? Do you think it was him? <laughs> in whom intense lust was somehow catalyzed by the meditation and it was really painful for him. 
He's not the first guy to experience lust from meditating a lot, that's for sure. So go ahead and enjoy the sensual, but recognize that fine demarcation between enjoying something when it presents itself as opposed to craving it when it's not there, which takes all the fun out of it. I mean, it's just like totally ruins it. You know, the fun is in like craving and then getting, right? At the end, he says, simply, if uh, if you are meditating quietly and thoughts of sense desires come in and grab your mind, then your shamatha just ended. He's pretty black and white, this guy. is very humorless, and I don't know. Trump Rinpoche is much more generous in this regard, constantly, like constantly talking about uh, sensual things, uh, uh, obsessions going on in meditation. I don't know why. Maybe there's something going on with him. Let's see, lethargy and sleepiness. Uh, you know, if you fall asleep all the time in meditation, then you're not really going to progress. Now, I think many of us, if not most of us, like go through a stage where we sleep, get sleepy a lot in meditation. Like those of us that have done a daton. Who's done dotons here? Cynthia, right? Has anyone else done a dot in a full month of meditation? Eric, uh, Neil. Um, when you do a dot in, it's like you go through different phases. I certainly went through a phase where I would just fall asleep. I don't know if you did, Cynthia. Did you have that? Well, for me, actually, I don't know that it was so much in dot I mean, I'm sure I had my fuzzy moments in dot no doubt about that. Um, but I had a stage, you know, just you know, in my home practice where I found that I, it really hit me that I was, um, and I, I realized that I, I wasn't, I, it was actually a really interesting question of what was going on. I, and I realized that maybe it's that I finally got to a point of actually relaxing enough that, you know, instead of having a hyperactive sort of, uh, more, you know, I, I probably started out tending more towards the agitation side, and then it's like at some point I hit this other. It was like very unusual, and yeah. kind of um, yeah. you know. I, it, it, but it went on for quite a while. So I mean, I explored yeah. that quite a bit. <laughs> yep, common experience: uh, excitation and anxiety, which we saw as the main obstacle to meditation. So. <clears throat> Skepticism, doubt, this is usually translated as doubt. And uh, in the second paragraph, he explains that uh, this type of skepticism is very different from another type of doubt that is enormously helpful. In fact, indispensable to the spiritual path, the critical mind, which is something that Trung Brimshe emphasized a lot. He tried to get people to be very critical of like, what are they doing, and what's going on, and what is our world, and who am I, sort of thing. And that's what Alan is getting at. There's this traditional reference to doubt as the beginning of the understanding of the true nature of reality is being empty. One little moment of doubt has the power to erode the entire mountain of samsara, is a famous statement by Arya Deva, or a line from one of his his uh, most famous texts, the 400 shlokas. Such a c- 
catchy name, you know, another catchy name text. I'll call this one <laughs> the 400. Anyway, um, so this, he's here, he's, this type of uh, skepticism is the one like uh, just constantly like doubting what we're doing and really becoming an impediment. This doubt is, uh, let's see, he's talking about the good part of doubt. It's the vital part of the cultivation of wisdom. And inside, if you don't have it, you have nothing but dumb faith. <laughs> it's, it's subtle, huh? Uh, the kind of doubt that's a hindrance just stands there helplessly without moving forward saying, oh, gee, I don't know. I'm not sure. <laughs> Maybe. Simple answer to dealing with the five obstructions is not to orient one's life around them. Recognize them when they come up. Some we should release altogether. There's no use for ill will. It's a pretty good point. Others we put in their place, de-emphasizing them. The five factors of stabilization. And so these this is the traditional list of the five factors that occur in the uh, first uh, dhyana or jhana state, the first absorption state. And uh, so the five factors of stabilization <clears throat> that as one progresses through the four or five absorptions, depending on uh, whether you split the first one in two parts or not, one progressively loses one of them at each stage, which is why sometimes there's a system of five they affiliate with these five factors. So first, applied attention is the conscious directing of the attention. Uh, applied attention tends to act as a direct remedy for lethargy and sleepiness. With applied attention, we now have something to do other than just spacing out. You know, so it's, okay, so he explains it, but it's a little bit odd to like, saying that this is like a factor that's occurring at the first absorption state where, where he's saying okay instead of spacing out spacing out we left spacing out behind a very long time ago in this system close examine and and it's sort of it's also interesting that there's these two sort of discursive mental active act mentally active factors in the first absorption going on. Close examination. Once you have applied your attention to the object, then you can enhance it by attending more closely. This happens especially when you have some stability and can now move towards greater vividness. This sounds like introspection, but I've never seen anyone compare these two types of mental activity with mindfulness and or introspection which is, I think is a really interesting question. So are these, are these different than introspection or not? Anyway, the third one, uh, he translates as zest. It begins by percolating up as interest. You start attending with a greater sense of interest. Now, start attending makes it sound like this is happening early on in the practice. Um, but again, I found his presentation of these sort of confusing because usually these factors are the factors that predominate in the absorption states. And so they're very powerful, refined 
factors, and they're usually described as these three and four as being there's a physical sense of joy or bliss or well-being, and there's a mental sense of joy and well-being. Um, so, but here he's describing zest in a sense of focused um, appreciative interest. Although it evolved to, he says, uses the term ecstasy, which might correlate a little bit with that bliss. That yeah, that makes it sound a little more advanced and more, yeah, that's right. <clears throat> it increases until it becomes a state of ecstasy that acts as an antidote to ill will. That's true. So all of these do start along the way, although he didn't mention them along the way. It's like, why wouldn't these be mentioned as factors starting with, you know, at least like Shamatha stage four or five or something. It's odd that like they appear now. Uh, anyway, that's my commentary. Out of uh, joy, uh, out of the progression from interest to zest to ecstasy, now you're proceeding to harder drugs. You've taken MDMA, and now you take psilocybin mushrooms, and then finally you take LSD, I think. Did I get that right? Let's see. Zest, uh, joy is simply a, a sense of well-being. This joy acts as an antidote to both excitation and anxiety. It sweeps away both the desire-driven turbulence of the mind and the remorseful guilt-driven anxiety, concentration, one-pointedness. So the, the fifth factor uh, is uh, sometimes described as equanimity or equilibrium, sometimes uh, as concentration. It actually shifts at the first absorption state, it's equilibrium, and then when you get to the fifth, the fourth absorption, or fifth, depending on what system you want to use, it turns into one-pointedness. Eka, gotra, or something. Anyone? Uh, let's see. Concentration or samadhi arises out of the joy. When that joy comes not because you're thinking about something nice, you know, unconditional joy. Out of the balanced nature of the mind itself, concentration finally eliminates the last remaining obstacle, sense desire, which is the main obstacle in this world realm, which is why we are said to live in the realm of desire. You have three realms, desire, form, and formless, and this realm is pervaded by desire, which is why when the Buddha described the second noble truth, the cause of suffering, he said desire. It's the main overriding experience that we have. It's not the root cause of suffering, but it's the main experienced cause. <clears throat> when the mind goes into samadhi, sensual desire vanishes. Um, he says, let's see, the the, uh, the hindrance, the five obstacles at this point are gone. They're not necessarily eradicated forever, but like unwelcome house guests, they've been sent away. Uh, let's see, the choice of an object, breath awareness is practiced most commonly in Southeast Asia, where emphasis is placed on mindfulness more than on imagination. By imagination, he means uh, creative visualization, i.e., development stage 
uh, practice as the support for developing shamatha, which is is what is done in the uh, Vajrayana traditions. And he notes that if uh, so, he goes through that. And one of the advantages of breath awareness as an object for shamatha, as opposed to visualization, is it's much easier to get started. For a lot of people, using a visualized object is complicated. It describes understanding all sorts of complicated stuff about what am I visualizing and how and why and blah, blah, blah. You know, the breath is just universally simple and uh, relatable. <clears throat> it says, I've hardly met a Westerner who can sustain a visualization for a long period without getting exhausted. It's interesting. If you actually attain shamatha and visualization practice, however, the stability and vividness are enhanced to such a degree that your visualized object appears as clearly as if it were physically present. Wow. Moreover, it is self-radiant and you can maintain it effortlessly for hours on end with no physical discomfort. Just like shamatha, the full, complete shamatha that he described. Another possible object for shamatha meditation is the mind itself, as taught in Mahamudra and Dzogchen. Some people find it discouraging because the object, i.e. that object, i.e. the mind, as an object, can be very elusive, <laughs> which is sort of funny in that, you know, the mind is like so continuously present and overbearing and like the root of everything, and at the same time, it's elusive figures. And yet if one can do it, it can be very, very rewarding. You start with breath awareness. But when the mind becomes very still, you disengage your awareness from the breath and turn it right in on awareness itself, which is sort of the secret in the tradition of Trump Rinpoche that you're not supposed to tell beginners. But that gradually you pick up on that. Really, <coughs> really the object is awareness. And um, there's there's still a faint, uh, some connection with the breath, which is presented as the union of shamatha and vipassana in, in a certain way. Um, this is not for the this is not the same as vipassana inquiry, and when he gives the Pali spelling of that term, whereas the Sanskrit is vipassana, vipassana is the Pali. He's indicating the so-called MVM that he called it in one other reading, the modern Vipassana movement, which practices um, the inquiry of looking for the eye, but rather, you're, but in our case of focusing on the mind, you're looking into the nature of awareness itself. You're not doing that inquiry process. Awareness is a phenomena, an event. So it can be an object of meditation, the event aspect of awareness. You know, and that's why it's so elusive because when you say awareness is event is an event, that's weird to say. But uh, you know, if you can sort of connect with what he's trying to convey, then it, it gives you a little handle, perhaps, so to speak, on the mind. <laughs> this little handle on the side of your mind you can grab onto. What are the salient characteristics of awareness that distinguish it from color or thought or emotion or other many other events? 
it must exist, otherwise we couldn't hear anything, couldn't see anything. But what is the quality of awareness itself as opposed to the objects of awareness or the contents of awareness, thought, and so forth? I'm on the top of his page 79. The qualities you look for in this type of practice are the experience of luminosity and transparent awareness. And again, luminosity is the cognizable, the quality of cognizance clarity mental clarity these are just words of course but all you can do is start with words um he gives this analogy of uh, a clear spring which is nice the speck of dust appears in the water and highlights the clarity of the water when there's something that gives a contrast to it so in the middle of that paragraph, awareness itself is just like a pool of water. One of its features is vivid luminosity, another is transparency. The transparency is what makes it so hard to grab onto, but within that transparent domain, should anything appear, it will appear vividly. What sort of things might appear in that, in that domain? Any ideas? <laughs> that was a hint. Um, that quality of luminosity is present even when there's nothing in it. Is there ever nothing in it? Um, but having some some content like a speck of dust, you know, just like one stray thought maybe, makes it possible to see the luminosity and transparency. So continuing the analogy, having begun with the breath awareness and coming to a relative stillness, you may toss up a thought deliberately, <laughs> like tossing up a, a speck of dust into the pool. <laughs> Just to make sure I'm still meditating, let's generate a thought. What is the mind, you can ask? You could say anything past the popcorn. <laughs> uh, let's see, the purpose of tossing up a thought like this is not to start pondering the nature of the mind. Here we're not pondering the nature of the mind and shamatha on the nature of mind. We're not doing vipassana, which would be pondering the nature of the mind. But we're just directing our awareness to that thought and noting by its presence the luminosity of its environment. You can see the thought. So by having content, it, it, um, it highlights the container, which is the awareness. Interestingly, um, and it's sort of like looking, when we look at our thoughts, there's this sense of looking. We, I, I, you know, I'm assuming you're like me, but I always look as if I'm looking forward at thoughts. You know, they're always like here. <laughs> it's never like my thoughts are like over there or in my butt or down in the floor. You know, so, okay, my thoughts arise. And then it's like, well, what about the rest of this? That's that's my sense of the of uh, how to do uh, meditating on the nature of mind. It's like I'm I'm suddenly trying to become aware of the container within which the thoughts arise all around. And uh, let's see, where the hell was I? I was lost in thought. I think you see the thought. Then it fades out just like dust dissolving into water, but the limpidity 
It's a great word. And luminosity remain. That takes some time and it takes a very subtle mind to do it, but you can do it. If you can do it, it will open many doors. So in other words, in your mind, there's little doorways that you can open up. One, number two, number three. This is still shamatha practice. The first step is shamatha, and the second step is insight. So we're not doing insight yet. This this shamatha phase. The problem is that it's so easy just to space out. I don't know what he's talking about. Do you? <laughs> it is. You know, you do our style of meditation. It's very easy to med- to space out. I think a lot of people in our tradition space out a lot. When you're attending to the breath, you know what your object is and you know when you've lost it. When you practice shamatha with the mind itself as your object, it's very easy just to sit there with a blank mind. Sitting with a blank mind is not the same thing as doing shamatha on the mind, which has an object, but it's an extremely subtle one. This is why focusing on the out-breath and not the in-breath is a sort of in-between combo sandwich approach of, okay, we have an object, meditating on the breath, and then in the in-breath, we're meditating on the mind. And and then at some point, they come together so that you're meditating on the mind while the breath is happening. I, I don't know, maybe I'm doing it wrong. I got it wrong all these years. <laughs> but that's my understanding of it, is that you gradually sort of merge the two and you're meditating on the mind the whole time and within that there's the breath and uh, the whole you know emphasis of the out breath versus the in breath becomes a little bit muted it's just like there's breathing and there is there is still that sense of letting go on the out breath but there's very much the sense of the container the mind If you've developed shamatha in any one object, then it's easy to do it on another object. Skipping to the next paragraph, <clears throat> which is the third one on the page for the actual attainment of shamatha, it's said on good authority that it will be achieved only if you're focusing on a mental object. Interesting statement. If you tend to a sensory object like music, flowers, you may have superb concentration, but it will not reach the same depth as if you're focusing on a mental object. And that is the general view. Um, so when we say in the Vajrayana tradition that we're not cutting off the senses, we're 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 doing we're saying that on the basis of of the view that the senses and the objects of the senses are mind. That everything is mind. And that's, we don't usually say that or talk about that, but that is what's going on. Uh, it's for this reason that you transfer the focus in, his, in the other tradition, as he did. Let's see, there's a Q&A, and uh, anything interesting in the Q&A? Um, Relaxing is important. Oh, let's see. Uh, the culmination of shamatha was description of 
on let's see source book page 225 and text page 84 was interesting it says beyond shamata and i guess we'll finish up with this and i'll touch on the other one next week at the very moment when you actually achieve shamatha in the practice of breath awareness, the mental sign of the breath that has been the object of meditation disappears. Holy shit. And another far more subtle mental sign arises in its place. It arises from the nature of the mind itself, and it is intimately related to the breath. That newly arisen mental sign now becomes your object. If you want to go beyond shamatha in the states known as the four meditative stabilizations, you attend to that new sign and there are specific techniques for making the transition into the actual first stabilization. He's using the word stabilization as a translation for dhyana and jhana, or uh, what I've been calling absorption states. And so he's, he's like uh, describing the culmination of the traditional version of shamatha leading into absorption here, just to complete that picture. By the fourth stabilization, your breath stops and you die. Oh, I added that, sorry. Uh, but he does say, your breath stops. <clears throat> the mind goes into an utterly profound, virtually limitless serenity. Beyond that, you drop that mental image and go into what's called the formless realm, a dimension of boundless space. So now we're going into the formless absorptions from the form absorptions, right? And the first one is limitless space and then limitless consciousness. Uh, let's see. Any sense of your body in meditation is long past at this point. Beyond that, you go into a sense of boundless consciousness, and beyond that, into a sense of nothingness. These are the four uh, formless meditations. Space, boundless space or limitless space, uh, limitless consciousness, boundless consciousness, uh, nothingness at all, nothing at all, and then neither perception nor non-perception. Um, beyond that, you move into a state that is said to entail neither discernment nor non-discernment. Which sounds like you're sort of blanking out, but apparently it's different. That's a description from the Theravadan tradition. Thank you very much for saying that, Alan. Tibetans come at it from a very different angle. In the first place, it seems their tradition has not taken breath awareness as a vehicle all the way to shamatha for a very long time. Many Tibetans have attained shamatha, but they've used visualization techniques and meditation on awareness instead. Moreover, the Tibetans have not generally been interested in attaining this, the stabilizations, meaning the absorptions beyond shamatha in the tibetan context in which the emphasis is on vajrayana you don't want to attain the first stabilization that's a that's a trap there's a good reason for this when you move beyond shamatha and attain the actual first stabilization sense desire one of the five hindrances to achieving that stabilization is temporarily suppressed altogether whether the stimulus is food music sexual whatever it's like giving a lion <laughs> Uh, let's see. I'll skip the rest of that paragraph. Go into the next one. He says, in contrast, in Vajrayana, you don't want to totally suppress all your sensual desires. 
That's why it's so tricky. You certainly don't want to be overwhelmed by them, but you don't want to eliminate them either. You want to be able to beckon desire at will. I don't know who Will is, but he's getting a lot of attention. Um, to elicit it or him for the purpose of transmuting it. This is thoroughly within formal practice. One generates a sense of bliss in the context of one's sensory experience. For example, while eating, while sound, experiencing sound, or in sexual activity. If you happen to be meditating while you're in sexual activity, <clears throat> you transmute the experience. But rather than coming to it as an unhappy beggar, who seeks happiness externally in the sensory experience. In Vajrayana practice, you let the bliss that comes from a much deeper source suffuse and transmute the pleasure of ordinary sensual experience. This can be misread or trivialized in many different ways, but the point is to bring the bliss of a very, very deep state of consciousness into your sensual experience so that it takes on a transcendent quality slippery slope of Vajrayana. It seems that for centuries the Tibetans have not been practicing the higher meditative stabilizations. <laughs> they are, however, immersed in shamatha, which takes you to the threshold of the form realm, <laughs> the boundary, the the border of the of the two. Um, as long as you're right there in the threshold, you have access to desires, but you're over, you're, aren't overwhelmed by them. I'll skip the next paragraph. Another approach, which is common to all Buddhist tradition, is to put the shama to use in the cultivation of insight. <clears throat> You've earned an absolutely superb tool for investigating the nature of, nature of reality. There's a whole array of disciplines, models of inquiry, investigation that can be optimally, that can optimally be used with shamatha and they're radically transformative. You can use them without shamatha, but you just can't do it as well. And that's basically what the practical, in practical terms, all of the traditions do is that they start you on Vipassana well, way before you achieve shamatha as we all know. Or Take that extraordinarily serviceable mind and apply it to the cultivation of loving kindness and compassion. That would be immensely worthwhile. Thank you for pointing that out. And so next week we'll take a look at the, I wanted to just go through the release model in the other uh, reading because he sort of describes again how to do that from his point of view, which is similar to our point of view. Any comments, questions, suggestions, thoughts at all? Mary Beth? Well, I have two. One I, I think is maybe hopefully easier, and that is, are obstructions the same as obscurations? Mm. Great question. No. So you got hindrances? You got the five hindrances, which are ill will, lust or sense desire and so forth and then you have the five obstacles to shamatha which are laziness forgetting the object and so forth uh, laxity and excitation and so forth and then you have the five ob the two uh, obscurations which are 
the knowledge obscuration and the uh, klesha obscuration. Yeah. Yeah, so those are different. Sometimes they sort of blend them and they say there's three obscurations and they add the obscurations to samadhi. And in that they put the hindrances. That's, sort, that's a sort of Mahayana way of incorporating the hindrances. But yeah, those are different. Thanks for and asking that. I feel like this one is, well, so when he said that thing about you can make more progress if you focus on a mental object than a sensory object, which I think sort of goes back to my first question, but I mean, is it right that you first you're you're focusing on your breath, but it's really your sort of psychosomatic experience of your breath that Rinpoche describes, and then you really sort of start to feel like that actual breath, which I guess is maybe free from some intermediate thing that you're laying over it, but I think that would still be a, a sensory object. So then do you, do you come back to the, is the mental object the awareness of the breath rather than the actual breath? Well, here's my take on it for what it's worth is that um, when he said you, you can go farther, f farther, <laughs> farther, <laughs> father with a uh, mental object he means into the absorption states okay which okay. is not our objective and that in terms of uh as you said yeah so first it's like we have a mental image of the breath and then it feels like yeah and the body right and it feels like gradually we become more and more in contact with the actual object the actual sense object, the body, the breath. And so my, my understanding of what's happening there is that we're, be, we're uh, um, becoming more and more, we're bringing our awareness more and more into the sense consciousness as opposed to the sixth consciousness that does like associations and discursive thought, right? You know, you have your, your scheme of at least six consciousnesses just to keep things simple instead of the eight. The sixth consciousness is thinking about the objects, whether it's a mental or, or the actual external physical object. Um, so we're shifting from all the discursive commentary that initially is what occurs to um, uh, relaxing or uh, settling into the sense consciousnesses, which doesn't mean that we're actually um, meditating on the object, but we're meditating on the sense consciousness. So what is the sense consciousness? Um, you know, the, the object of the sense consciousness is in the Sautrantika is the aspect, the so-called aspect, which is the reflection of the external sense object. 
in the Vaibhashikas, there's a real uh, sense in Vaibhashika and Santrantika, there's a real external sense object. In Vaibhashika, we're directly contacting through our, with our consciousness, <clears throat> even our mental consciousness, the external object. In Sautrantika, we're connecting with the mental uh, representation of the external object. And in Yogacara, there is no external object and we're experiencing the uh, manifestation of our Aliya Vijnana as the object. And in Madhyamaka, <clears throat> we say that um, the external object is not a thing because it has no entity. And so we sort of uh, almost dismiss the question because it's the wrong question. And so that progression is sort of very different than the simplicity of what you're asking. And my feeling about responding and answering, trying to answer the simplicity of what you're asking is that as we progress in the meditation, we're shifting from the sixth consciousness into the, into either the tactile, tactile consciousness or the, the um, I mean, it's basically the tactile consciousness. We don't see the breath. To some extent, we see our body and we see the room around us, you know. So when we say that we um, expand our uh, awareness to the room, to the sorry, to the space, we don't perceive space, right? Space is a mental object because it's a mental a conceptual creation. There's no such thing as space. There's absence of objects, which is what we call space. So you would be <clears throat> then dwelling in your visual consciousness of the room, of the um, sort of um, expanse, let's say, of the room, which is my verbal attempt to uh, sum up all the visual objects of a room um, instead of the space that it, that is between the objects. You know, so you would be dwelling more and more in the sense consciousness of the tactile sense and the visual sense. Because that's, with our eyes open, that's what we're all doing is we're seeing the visual objects. And so you would be relaxing the association of the sixth mental consciousness and residing in the much much more in the direct non-conceptual cognition that occurs in the sense consciousnesses does that make sense so to speak that was a pun right <laughs> well i mean first of all you describing those ways it's different in those the Saltrantica and the, that was brilliant I mean that was just really brilliant and I think it's gonna take me a while to digest <laughs> yeah so that's the progression of the four schools and how the four different schools view the cognition of objects right you know the four tenant systems helpful thank you okay good <laughs>
it's a work in progress. It's definitely uh, not a simple question. And, uh, but it's really a fascinating one because what you see in Vajrayana, you see this emphasis on direct cognition, which yeah. is sense cognition. And teachers talk about that as being part of the special technique of Vajrayana is that we're not using any more inferential understanding of uh, with the nature of reality, but we're shifting to the direct uh, sense cognition. We're using the senses. Trungpa Rinpoche talks about this a lot. He talks about experiencing the ayatanas. He gives this famous talk within uh, the context of actually this advanced uh, container he created for Shambhala teachings. He gives this famous talks on this famous talk on the fields of the ayatanas. And it's within the context of talking about the three natures of the Yogacara system. And in the Zhentong version of that, or the Vajrayana version of the three natures system, you have this idea that that their sacred world, that the dependent nature is actually transformed into sacred world. And it's this idea of like, well, what does a Buddha experience? A Buddha doesn't live in a vacuity. A Buddha interacts with some sort of, you know, facade of objects or something, you know, and in the Vajrayana, Buddhas, we're, we're all like deities, and all of the objects are like representations of, of uh, Dharma Ta. You know? <laughs> I don't know. So, it's a great, great uh, topic. Thank you for asking that. Anything else? Let us conclude then with our dedications. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may I def defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom, May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Such an interesting shift between those two chants. It's like what we were talking about. You know, the first one was like, there's an enemy and the ocean of samsara, you know, and then it's like, may the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. What is it? Uh, I can't even remember how it goes when I'm not chanting it, right? By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. That's sacred world, right? That's like, you know, the blossoming of uh, the transformation of, uh, of impure perception into pure perception. And so there we're like dwelling in the fields of the ayatanas uh, in a, in a non-conceptual way, ideally. Thank you. Great Thank to you. see you. Hey, Thank hey, you, everyone. Emily, 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 don't go. I want to get the name of that artist. That oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, chat. I'll put it in the chat. <laughs> oh, okay. Thank you. Take care.
You know what it also, I'm... Derek? It it what? also explains a lot of uh, uh, Shambhala's um, yeah. uh, appreciation of the natural world and the environment. Shambhala is all about that. Shambhala is, is you know? and and I just made that connection after you know you made that comment about the Rigdon's wisdom blooming. Yeah, Shambhala is Vajrayana, pure and yeah. simple. <laughs> Thank you. What is your your background is like bizarre. <laughs> Me? Yeah. Oh, partly oh, it's I'm, my computer screen. Oh, there we go. It's very dark, oh, yeah. It's just dark. It's just dark. <laughs> and yeah. you're seeing me from the light of the screen, that's all. Right, right. <laughs> I thought you meant you wanted me to talk about my background in computers. That's, oh, you, know, that's you have impossible. a dark background. That's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. So 